Hello and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter and your host of today's podcast. I'm joined by Sarah Keenan, director in charge of the Melbourne practice of Farah Jassini Dunn. Sarah specialises in family law, including estates disputes and conflict resolution, and has a practice that focuses on dispute resolution, including collaboration and more complex property settlement issues, as well as financial agreements. Sarah, welcome to Taxiac. Thanks, Robin. So today we're going to have a chat about family law issues and how that impacts on tax law and the tax implications. Mm-hmm. I thought we'd just start with a bit of background on what does family law look like? What do relationships look like? What are the divorce and separation rates in Australia? Have we got any statistics on this? So the statistics are a bit confusing because the method of reporting is per thousand of population. But what we do know is that the divorce rate amongst married couples has gone down since the 1970s. But that's because people are entering into de facto relationships first and the rate of separation in those de facto relationships is going up. So there's a lot more try before you buy. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it makes sense. The separation rate for de facto is about six times the rate for married couples. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. And it's a sensible approach, um, but it is something which is often, I suppose, overlooked and misunderstood that de facto still need to deal with family law issues and it's not just for married people. So what is de facto? We've got a Family Law Act. Does that include de facto and how do we define a de facto? So it does include de facto since 2009 and the test is a little bit complicated. For most people it's really straightforward. You live together, you move into the one house, you're a de facto. If you've been living together for two years or more or you have a child, uh, then either party can apply for a property settlement if they separate. It can, however, be more complicated where you're not sharing a single house. So e.g. the couple where one lives in Melbourne, one lives in Sydney. Yeah, that's right. So if people are moving back and forth between two houses, maybe not together all of the time, maybe it's weekends here and weekends there, if that extends for, you know, a year or more, then that could very well be a de facto relationship. Also, if you've got, say, uh, a place in the city and a place in the country, it, you know, there's, it's not clear-cut and you have to look at the entire circumstances of the relationship. There have been high-profile couples reported in the media over the years where they lived in the same apartment building but in adjoining apartments. Mm. They wanted their own space but they wanted the uh, convenience of being able to call on each other yep. when yep. desirable. That's right. So, And that's the kind of classic case of it could be a de facto relationship. There's also... Um, I don't want to say a burgeoning industry, but it's worthwhile if, um, you know, say a less well-off person is in a potentially de facto relationship with a very wealthy person, having a crack at that because the reality of litigation means that the wealthy person is probably going to pay some go-away money to avoid uh, going through court and depending on how much they're worth, that go-away money could be quite a lot. Now, the vernacular expression, the prenup or the prenuptial agreement is Mm -hmm. more formally a binding financial agreement. And these aren't confined to married couples, are they? A de facto could use a a BFA. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that uh, we can use as a tactic, actually, if uh, you have a client who 
is in a relationship, could be a de facto relationship, maybe not a de facto relationship. Often we will draft an agreement that is a before relationship agreement, so the relevant section of the Act is 90UB, and we do that partly to be able to enter into the agreement but also as evidence that it wasn't a de facto relationship because these people were negotiating a 90UB agreement. Um, It goes to show that they weren't actually in a de facto relationship yet. So it's a pre-relationship agreement. How pre are we talking? First date? We sit down and we work out who's going to pay for the meal. And by the way, can you also sign this pre-relationship BFA? Yeah, in in theory, if you've also brought your lawyers along for some independent (laughs) legal advice. Maybe not the funnest date, but (laughs) sure. Okay. Now, the trend that we're seeing is... um, Consistent with what we'd expect, that de facto relationships are breaking up more often, marriages not so much. Mm -hmm. But we're also seeing the age at which people marry increasing. Yes. Um, It's broadly low 30s now. Um, Women are about 30, uh, men are about 32. Mm -hmm. Um, But we're also seeing an increase in marriages that have been running for 20 years or longer breaking up. Yes. Yeah, so I think that um, idea of, well, you've got that far, so you might as well keep sticking it out is... um, no longer the case. I think maybe with rising life expectancy, people are looking at each other across the breakfast table when the kids have moved out and just thought, well, what am I going to do for the next 40 years? Maybe financial independency. Yeah. But yeah. we're also seeing situations where women do come out of uh, very long-term marriages and they'll be in their 50s. And we're hearing stories of homeless women or women that mm. have no superannuation yep. and they're in dire financial straits because they've been relying on their husbands all these yeah, years. Yeah, that's right. So the largest uh, growth in the homeless population is women in their 60s and older. And it's just really sad. Uh, it's a really terrible state of affairs. I don't know what the answer is. Um maybe some more favourable property settlements, but if there's not enough assets to go around, then, you know, there's not... The pie's only so big. That's right. Yep. That's right. All right, so getting into blending the family law with the tax law, so obviously Mm -hmm. your specialty is family law and my specialty is tax law, so we're going to combine the two in this discussion. Transfer of marital assets. Now, Mm -hmm. I immediately think capital gains tax. Yep, that's right. Because when you've got a transfer of an asset, um, typically property could be shares, could be motor vehicles, mm-hmm. could be interests in businesses, That's shares right. in companies, units Anything. in trust, depending how sophisticated yep. their affairs are. Um, where do you start with all of this? So if the transfer is consequent upon a relationship breakdown and the parties have done a financial agreement or consent orders to formalise their property settlement. And just so we're clear, consent orders means the family court has ordered yes, that's, that's a particular correct. outcome. Um, or it doesn't have to be by consent. They could have a big fight about it if they chose to. Then there is rollover relief. But the important thing to remember, which is something that is often missed, is that means that the person who is getting the asset just inherits the cost base. It doesn't wipe it out. The original cost base. Yes, that's yes. right. Um, and in the family law context... If you're having an argument about it, the court has said quite a few times, and most famously in Rosati, that unless the sale is imminent and basically a part of the property settlement, then CGT and sale costs don't get taken into account. So it's something to really bear in mind when deciding what assets to ask for, what the split should look like, that if a party is going to be inheriting a significant cost base, that may not be something that the family court is actually going to take off as a liability on the asset pool. So if a property was transferred that was purchased 25 years ago mm-hmm. 
and it might be main residence or it might be an investment property. Um, yep. There are different outcomes, of course, depending on what it is. Mm-hmm. That cost base transfers to the transferee spouse. Yes. If they're then going to sit on it for another 20 years, yep. the current orders can't contemplate what the CVT bill exactly. might be in the future. Yeah, that's right. And it's a matter of evidence, really. I mean, you don't know what you know the law is going to say about tax rates then. You don't know what their income is going to be then. So it does make sense, but it can be a ticking time bomb for some parties. Now, we've had a recent case called Ellison and Sandini, a very mm-hmm. public divorce settlement um, with Chris Ellison and his wife over in Western Australia. And this case went all the way up to the full federal court. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a special leave application to the High Court, which was refused. Yep. But this case has confirmed that where an asset is transferred from, in this case, it was his unit trust across to her discretionary trust, the CGT rollover relief was not available Yes, because the law... According to the states, that it must go from spouse to spouse, yep, or Trump company or trust to spouse. That's right. But it can't go from entity to entity, yes, or from spouse to entity. Yes, that's right. So um, it makes it very tricky trying to create a tax-effective settlement where you've got lots of assets held by entities, because. That's right. The CGT rollover is only available if the transferee takes it into their own name. So uh, whoever's getting that asset in a large property settlement could end up with a whole lot of properties in their name, which is not very tax or, um, I suppose, bankruptcy and other kinds of law effective. It's worth pointing out a few uh, little quirks in the tax law as well. And there is a planning opportunity here. If you had a property that was the main residence of, say, the wife, Mm -hmm. and it was transferred to the husband, then she would get main residence exemption, but she would also get the CGT rollover if it's transferred pursuant to a court order Mm -hmm. or the BFA. If, however, it went to an entity of his, then she's not going to get the CGT rollover through the marriage breakdown, but she would get the main residence exemption. But because she's not getting the rollover, that now means the cost base for his entity becomes market value at the date of transfer. Yes. So if you're looking at getting a property from spouse to entity through a marriage breakdown, there is an opportunity to actually reset the cost base here. Yes, though that could have stamp duty consequences. So you would need to pay stamp duty and you wouldn't get the exemption in that circumstance. Agreed. And now you've got the entity holding the asset, which may or may not be a good thing depending on how it's going to be used thereafter. Um, Another issue is with the main residence rules. So up until around 2008, when a property was transferred from one spouse to the other, they would inherit the original cost base Mm. because of the CGT rollover, but the main residence days were only calculated based on how the transferee spouse used it. Yes. So if they had a property that had been the main residence, became a rental property, then the whole property was taxable because that's how the transferee spouse had used it, Mm -hmm. but the cost base went back to the original one of the transferor spouse, and that was unfair. But conversely, you had a situation where it might have been a spare rental property that became a main residence yes. and there was a full exemption available, even if most of the time it had been used by the former spouse as mm. a rental property. Yep. So the law was changed and now all of the days need to be taken into account. So in other words, combined use. Yes. This just raises a new issue and I'm just going to throw this into the mix as well. And I'm not sure how closely you've been following this, but there is a measure which is proposed by the government to deny the main residence exemption to foreign residents. Yes. And that bill was introduced and was sitting before the Senate uh, lapsed with the calling of the election. Uh, The government has confirmed they're still committed to the measure, but we haven't seen a new bill yet. 
What is unclear is the impact of the former spouse becoming a non-resident after the property is transferred to the resident spouse. Yes. And I think there are two ways this could be interpreted, and the the bill is silent, I, I say again. Either you look at the fact that the CGT event only applies to the resident spouse, so what the non-resident does now is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. So in other words, their main residence days when they did live in the property are preserved. Yes. In which case you just apply the normal rules. But my concern is that because the former spouse is now a non-resident, at the time of the CGT event happening to the resident spouse, the days of the former spouse are zeroed out. And that means these rules could actually deem a a taxable capital gain to be happening to the resident spouse Mm. who's never set foot overseas and may not even be aware that her former spouse or his former spouse is now residing overseas. Yeah, that's right. It's really scary um, because it's not an uncommon scenario for one party, particularly if they've got some ties to overseas or have been working overseas to choose to move there. And there can be some good reasons for doing that in the context of a property settlement, accessing super and various other tax considerations but it seems perverse that wife and it's usually wife and kids in a house could then be stuck with a massive CGT bill unknowingly unknowingly that they have no control over and I've got two questions about this one and that you can't answer these this is just I'm putting it out there but one is how would you even know that your former spouse is a non-resident you may or may not know they're now working overseas but that mm. doesn't mean for tax purposes they are a non-resident that's right and secondly how could you possibly factor into a family law settlement the contingency that maybe one day the former spouse might happen to become a non-resident yes and then you might have a CGT bill at the point you sell your home 10 years after that yeah that's right well you couldn't and even if wife, for example, is still getting child support through the child support agency, that doesn't mean that the former spouse is still therefore a tax resident. So you're right, she's got no way of knowing. So it is something that I'm still following up on and I will continue to lobby the government on that particular issue mm. amongst others associated with the bill, but it's, it's a concern. Now, another major issue that comes up with uh, settlements in relation to property is Div 7A. Yes. And I've got All to say, I get the feeling that this is often not thought about. People turn in their minds to the fact there might be a Div 7 issue. Yes, that's right. It is often even little things like getting a car out of the company, which is something which is done all the time, of course, has Div 7A uh, consequences. And they scale up from there. And it's something which is often misunderstood or just ignored. So with the, the starting point, you've really got to look at whether the transfer of the asset or the payment being made by a company is being made to a former spouse who is a shareholder mm-hmm. or merely just an associate so, of a shareholder. Yes. So if they're a direct shareholder of the company and there's a court order that says the company has to pay X dollars or it has to transfer an asset, a car or a property, mm-hmm. then that will be considered just a straight section 44 dividend yes. because they are a shareholder. It gets more interesting when they're not a shareholder and they're an associate. Yes. Now, if it's a straight payment, then it's considered a 109C payment under Div 7A, Mm -hmm. and it will be treated as a deemed dividend. If it is a transfer of property, then a transfer of property is also deemed to be a payment under 109C. There is an exception called 109J, and where a payment is made by a company to a shareholder or associate, and it discharges a pecuniary obligation, there was a thought at one stage that because the court order is ordering the company to do this, Mm. then the company is complying with that obligation. Yes. 
But the ATO has issued a ruling on this, 2014-5, which confirms that the 109J exception is not available. Do you find that people understand this or is this just going over their heads? No, it is just going over a lot of people's heads. Um, And so, again, often wives uh, look to a company and say, all right, well, I'll get X amount of cash or, as you say, an investment property and that can be my income stream and don't realise that they'll be paying a huge amount of tax on, on that. Now, it is possible to have the orders require the company to frank that dividend, um, which is something which should always be considered because I think without an order, um, and this is much more your area of expertise, Robin, the company directors could just choose to not. Absolutely. And I've often talked about this in this context when we've talked about divorce. If I have a lawyer and we, you know, let's say I'm the, I'm the wife and I walk into the courtroom, then if we've got a company that's ordered to make a payment, I've got you as my lawyer, Sarah. You're astute, you get this stuff. And we're going to go in there and say, right, we've got a payment coming to me, but company, we want to make sure this is franked. Yes. But if I've got a lawyer who doesn't understand this, they're not going to be even aware that this can be franked. That's right. The husband potentially is not going to say anything, nor is his lawyer. No. It comes down to the ability of the family lawyers to understand the tax implications. Mm. And if they don't understand it, they need to seek tax advice. Yeah, that's right. And I think... Um, for the accountants who are the audience of this podcast, it's really important that you're on the front foot and talking to your clients' lawyers about tax because I'm a family lawyer, I'm not a tax lawyer, I'm not an accountant. Uh, I know enough to spot some issues, but really you as the client's accountant need to be making sure that there is a plan that the plan is communicated to the lawyer and it's done in conjunction with the lawyer and it's, you know, part of the discussions that are happening. Because there's no way that a director of a company is going to voluntarily give up a bunch of franking credits unless no. they're forced to. exactly right. What about entities? Let's go more complicated. Mm-hmm. We've got, might be a family business. Yes. And we've got a range of typical trusts, unit trusts, discretionary trusts, mm-hmm. corporate beneficiaries, trading companies. We'll get to superannuation later on. How do we unwind these? And I'm thinking two main issues. One is that we're going to have accounts sitting within the general ledger. There are going to be loan accounts, unpaid entitlements. Yes. They might be joint accounts. They might be accounted for individually. We've got to clean that up. Yep. And then secondly, we've got the control of the entities. That mm-hmm. is, who's going to be director, who's going to be trustee, appoint or guardian. Yep. And then thirdly, we've got who's going to control the shareholdings and unit holdings. Yes. So can I throw that back to you? Yeah, well, this is, um, I suppose, the bulk of the work that gets done in complex property settlements. And um, I think an interesting thing to talk about in this context is a lot of accountants and commercial lawyers don't understand that from the family court's point of view, entities don't really matter. If there is sufficient proximity to the entity, so if there is control, And if there is a history of receiving benefits from the entity, the family court is just going to treat the assets that it owns as if they're assets of the parties. We spend our careers drumming into our clients and drumming into their clients that all these entities are separate from the Mm -hmm. individual. And you're about to undo all that work to say when you get to the family court, it doesn't matter. That's right. From the family court's perspective. But the tax office still treats them as separate absolutely they and do. the transfers that come in and out of them are quite distinct that's right um bankruptcy law commercial law uh corporations act responsibilities etc all continue to exist but the family court overlays 
I suppose, a way of thinking about it, which doesn't necessarily always fit neatly with all of these other laws. Is that because the family court is coming up from a position of equity? I think that's right. And there are a lot of good policy justifications for it. Um, But getting these things right requires a lot of attention to detail about the particular entity, as well as um, considered advice about the various aspects of it. So um, another thing to flag is that although I've just said the family court doesn't care about entities, we do need to look carefully at each entity to see whether or not it is included in the asset pool or whether or not the court would just treat it as a financial resource. When would it be excluded from that pool? Basically, there has to be such a distance between the party and the entity that they don't really have any say over what happens to it. You know, a classic kind of, um, you know, Dickens trust where the poor sod, you know, young boy in the field finds out he's the beneficiary of a trust managed by a kindly old gentleman, but he has no say over what he gets. That, That would be excluded, but it might be treated as a financial resource. And so when you think about uh, loan accounts and UPEs, they can be useful as ways of tax effectively getting some cash out of these entities. But if the trust is to be treated as a financial resource, so if, say, you know, wife is one of three beneficiaries and um, three trustees, she can't make a decision on her own about what the trust is doing, but she has always received substantial money from the trust, she might say, not my asset, but a financial resource. But if there is an entitlement of the husband sitting there as a beneficiary account, he could come along and say, right, that's fine, your financial resource, but this here is an asset to me, so pay up. A situation where, let's assume wife has been the the stay-at-home wife and raised the children, Mm. he's been able to pursue the business and build that up. Let's say she's not a director or shareholder. Mm -hmm they still wouldn't consider that a separate asset from her assets because she basically, in terms of equity, has been supporting the family to build up and allow him to do that over time. That's right. He, in turn, has been able to build up the wealth of the business. Yes. So that could still be considered a a marital asset? Yeah, that would be, in that scenario, considered a a marital asset. You can get into some tricky areas if there are, say, other business owners as well and how you value that interest. And one of the biggest ones is... Often these businesses have a lot of value on paper because we value things in the family law context often as value to owner, but there may not be enough other capital to actually pay the wife out her fair share. And if you put this business on the market, you're not going to get the figure that it is actually worth to the business owner. So structuring a settlement that keeps the golden goose and gives her her fair share can be really tricky. What do you see regarding things like loan accounts and UPEs where, and I have seen this from time to time, it's run as a joint account Mm. and all is well when they're happily married or are in this happy de facto relationship. But when it all goes pear-shaped, you've got this problem where the account then has to be ideally separated or allocated to either of them. And one person in, in that account might say, well, hold on, they were the one who drew all the money out. That's right. That's got nothing to do with me. So therefore, they owe the money back to the company, not yes. me. Yes. Do you see those sorts of issues? All the time. Uh, joint loan accounts is something which I see, I think, in the majority of financial statements for small enterprises. Would you recommend that people don't use joint accounts? I would absolutely recommend yes, that. So do I. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's... 
It's just fodder for argument in a separation for exactly the reasons that you just said. And it can make um, things really tricky. I think it's also worth noting that when you've got a transfer of shareholdings and unit holdings in these structures, that will, of course, go back to the CGT issues we've already spoken about, whether rollover relief is available or not, and also your Div 7A issues. Mm -hmm. Quick anecdote, I remember hearing years ago of a unit trust and it had a corporate trustee basically run by the husband but the deed had been set up so both of them were appointals uh-huh. and any decision the trustee made had to be effectively approved by the appointals mm-hmm. and again all was fine when they were happily married but when they were going through proceedings he was wanting to borrow money or go into a new business contract or whatever the particular issue was he had to go and get the consent of his former spouse because she was a joint appointor. And I just feel in that situation, maybe there wasn't enough contemplation in the original deed and how it was drafted to allow for the fact that one day they may not be on great terms. Yeah, I think But that's it's right. very difficult to draft a trust deed at the outset. And whether it's trustee, appointor or beneficiary, hmm. can you just pop in the current spouse, not the person's name? <laughs> and you can see them glaring over your shoulder saying, yeah, oh, why can't right. my name go in there? That's right. And it's also something to think about um, that in that situation, the family court actually has very, very wide powers. So could, on an interim basis, order one of the parties to resign as an appointor, put someone else in, change trustee, change directorships, Uh, require the person who is running the business to notify the other spouse about uh, decisions and it can get really quite cumbersome. We can have these long, interesting intellectual conversations about what is in the ordinary course of business for a particular business Um, but I don't think anyone is jumping at the bit to have lawyers involved in all of those decisions. But coming back a step, doesn't that require everyone in the court, including the family court itself, Mm. to identify these relationships in the first place? And I don't mean the relationship of the parties. Yes. There needs to be a stock take of all the directorships, all the, the shareholdings, the unit holdings, what entities exist. Yes. Does the family court have transparency over that? Well, it depends on what the parties actually provide them. And it's astonishing to me the number of matters that I have where the trust deed can't be found and you do an ASIC search and the directorship is not how everyone thought the directorship was and the shareholdings don't go how everyone thought the the shareholdings went. Uh, And then you can have some very tricky issues trying to clean everything up. Is it fair to say that documents offer gather dust until this comes up? Yes, yes, absolutely. And I've long said that you can go on for decades Mm -hmm. making distributions in a manner that's not consistent with the deed or thinking that someone's a director when they're not. That's right. But if you get a death, an ATO audit, Mm -hmm. or a divorce... Or a separation. And if you're really lucky, you'll get all three at the same time... (laughs) These issues tend to come up to the surface. Yeah, that's right. And um, one of the things about the family court is we family lawyers are professionally very suspicious. And so when we see a history of transactions which don't accord with the ASIC searches, which don't accord with the trust deed, there can be a lot of issues around why was this, should we try to unwind them, then what would the tax consequences be on the unwinding of those transactions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Do you see imbalance in terms of the two parties? So one is financially more astute or Mm -hmm. literate than the other? Yes, in most cases, in most cases. And a significant proportion 
of the matters that are actually before the court are really there because one person doesn't understand and their lawyer doesn't understand and the other person is saying, no, no, it's all above board, but not necessarily going um, to the lengths that they should to actually explain it to quell the controversy. All right, the big one, superannuation. Yes. Can you give us a bit of history on what this used to look like? Because I'm referring back, of course, to the days when super was considered an asset that was untouchable by the court. And so you had inequities where the court orders would be made saying, well, we can't touch the super, so what we'll do is give the wife the house. Yes. And so what you'd have is a situation where she's got a roof to live under but has no retirement income, no savings and no superannuation. He has this great source of retirement savings when he gets there, mm. but he's living out in the streets at the moment. Yes. And that was clearly a, an unsatisfactory situation. So yes. what happens now with a separation of superannuation? So since 2001, we can split super as super. So, so as a marital asset? That's right, as a marital asset. Now, um, superannuation is, of course, not owned by the parties, so it requires... Uh, service upon the trustee and the trustee's participation. What the law says is that there are two ways of splitting it, a percentage of an interest or a base amount. So a base amount is just, you know, a dollar calculation of what the non-member spouse should get. And then that is sent to the trustee. They create a new account. Uh, With most accumulation funds, that's pretty straightforward, although you might find trustees requiring particular wording. They don't actually have the power under the Act to do that, but whatever, we play along. Um, It does get more complicated, though, when you have defined benefit superannuation and particularly self-managed super. That's a big area of, uh, I think, misunderstanding and difficulty. You're not just referring to the balances in the account, you're referring to the control of the fund itself. Uh, The control of the fund, actually how you affect a split. So is there enough cash to pay someone out? Often we see self-managed super funds that own, say, commercial premises that the businesses are run from. There's not enough cash lying around. How do you get the non-member spouse their interest um, and often it requires the sale of an asset, then you've got to make sure that the calculation of the base amount includes CGT and sale costs. And then uh, if you're having a big argument about everything, that might also impact the value of the business because now you've got a business operating from premises that may not have got a history of a lease. Um, they've been pretty fast and loose with the way that things have happened and um, now they have to renegotiate with new new owners. Can you explain the difference between what's called a payment splitting agreement Mm -hmm. and a flagging agreement? So a flagging agreement or a flagging order is something that says to the trustee, don't do anything with this super fund until we tell you otherwise. So if you have a member who is approaching preservation age, it's a very good idea to get a flagging order or a flagging agreement in place so that they can't just withdraw their benefits and you know, run off into the sunset. So it's a bit like an injunction? It is, it is. Okay. And that later order, is that something that the orders are done at the time but take effect at a later point or would the actual orders be made later? The actual orders splitting would be made later. So it's to preserve the asset until such time as it, it can all be cleaned up. Because although the family court has got power to make interim orders about, say, mortgage payments or interim cash payments... The court doesn't have the power to make interim 
uh, superannuation splitting orders. It can only be done on a final exercise of power. So there is a possibility in the case of a flagging agreement where they could be getting close to their preservation age, mm-hmm. might be five, could be eight years away. They've got to sit tight, so they've still got to potentially have ongoing dealings with their former partner or spouse. Well, I would hope that the property settlement would be done before then, and then it would either be lifted or the um, splitting order would be put into place. I'd, I don't know of any funds, though there are in theory funds which won't split a superannuation interest until the member reaches preservation age. And in fact, that's the way that the law is actually drafted. Um, the legislation is drafted. But in reality, they just do it now. Because many would want a clean break. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. So the payment splitting agreement, how does that work? So that's the agreement that does either a percentage or a base amount split and a new account is made in the name of the non-member spouse. Part of the member spouse's entitlement is rolled into that and then in most cases for most funds the non-member spouse can then take that to wherever they want the where that can't happen is uh in the defined benefit funds is there any cgt rollover where assets are moved from one fund to another because of the marriage breakdown yes where they are in specie i think i think there are um but these are these are the things which I, as a family lawyer, get checked every single time by the funds accountant um, or by a specialist superannuation lawyer because, for me, when you're dealing with self-managed super funds, each one is different, each one has its own issues, and it's really important to understand the particularities of the fund and all the consequences. And they shouldn't overlook just the basics of a self-managed fund, that you've got to have members being directors and you've got to have, if it's individual trustees, at least two Two of them. them. So you've been happily in this fund with the two of you and then one leaves. Mm -hmm. You can't leave it with one member, one trustee. Yes. Now, corporate trustee is doable, but you'd have to then remove one of them as the corporate uh, director and shareholder. Yes. And so often where you have the parties as joint trustees and you're doing a split, it's important that the orders also require, particularly if you're acting for the member spouse, um, an, an entity or someone else to be appointed as trustee so that you're not breaching uh, superannuation law. And this is where you can solve one problem and quickly create another. That's, that's right. Binding death benefit nominations. Yes. Yes. Um, so these are crucial and again something which is often overlooked self-managed super funds you need to check the deed to make sure that binding death benefit nominations are contemplated by the deed for most accumulation funds it's pretty straightforward and um, they should be updated if parties separate something to think about is if your client has got a um, defined benefit superannuation a lot of them don't allow binding death benefit nominations and where the interest in the super fund will go upon death is determined by the, the deed. So, Do you see unexpected outcomes or outcomes that people had not been expecting Yes, in the sense that they had done a, a binding death benefit nomination, forgot about it, overlooked mm-hmm. it, Yes, person's passed away and then we find that benefits are going to someone who they didn't particularly plan for those benefits to go to. Yeah, that's right. So this is a common scenario in, I suppose, all of the um, death-related issues to do with family law, that divorce 
has an effect not on a death benefit nomination but on wills. Um, separation doesn't. And a large number of people never divorce. So they can be separated for 20 years. Their will can be valid. Their binding death benefit nomination is valid. Their powers of attorney are valid. And they all give everything to the former spouse. Before we get into all the wills and estate issues, Mm -hmm. which is a big conversation, which I do want to have with you, why do you think so many people are not divorcing? I think in Australia, the property settlement and the divorce are totally separate processes. Um, And it's just... Once you've gone through a property settlement, you've gone got out the other end, often doing that divorce and paying the almost $1,000 filing fee just seems like something that's not top priority. It's an interesting phenomenon. Do you think people ever forget about it and they go to then remarry and realise that yes. they're actually still yes. married? Yes, we often get um, inquiries from people saying oh, I'm getting married next month and I've just realised I'm not divorced. And we have to say, well, sorry, buddy. <laughs> it's not, you can't get married. Not legal in this country. No. So moving into the issue of divorces and, and wills and so on. So the rules are when you remarry mm-hmm. or if you marry, because there may be a single person who gets married. Yes. Or if you remarry, yes. automatically your will is made null and void. That's correct. And it is certainly possible, of course, to prepare a will in contemplation of marriage. Yes. Um, a situation where if you left time dry at the altar, your old will remains valid. Yes. But if you do end up getting married, then your, your new will basically takes over. Yes. And that can just avoid the situation where moments after signing the marriage certificate, you're not having to sit down and sign new wills at the yes. same time. Yes. <laughs> so we know that when you get married or remarried, the old will is no longer valid. Mm-hmm. But you're saying on divorce... What happens in that situation? So on a divorce, uh, and it is different from state to state slightly, but in Victoria, on a divorce, gifts to the former spouse and the appointment of the former spouse as executor are void. So if I have a a will that leaves everything to my former husband, Mm -hmm. and this is a hypothetical situation, then the will remains valid if I don't remarry. Yes. But if we get divorced... You know that the former spouse can no longer be my executor and can no longer receive anything out of the estate. That's correct. If I had therefore left everything in the estate to my former husband, Mm -hmm. then that will has no practical effect. That's right. So you have a valid will that can't work, that doesn't do anything. What if we don't get divorced but we separate? Status of the will in that case. The will still stands. And so if you get hit by a bus, your former husband or your current husband, with whom you're no longer in a relationship, is your executor and gets everything. So if I then shack up with the new fellow mm-hmm. and I've not yet divorced the old one yep, and we're merely separated, yes, then that means that upon my death, if I've left everything to my former partner, former mm-hmm. husband, then they would get anything. And then there could be a challenge by the new partner if we've been in a de facto relationship That's for right. three years. That's right. And particularly if you have a child in the new relationship. What I am seeing is an increase, and maybe it's just a perception, but the number of cases coming through the tribunal at the moment where there is a fight about death benefits, Mm -hmm. and this is a combination of wills and estates with superannuation, but it's typically second or third marriages with children from the previous relationships. Um, It's very rare to see a parent and child squabbling over Mm -hmm. the deceased person's funds. Yeah. But you certainly see it when it comes to children of previous relationships and then the new partner. 
Yes, and look, estate planning in this area of blended families, uh, of multiple families, is really very complex. Uh, it's a tricky thing to do to create something that is fair. Uh, death benefits is one area because, of course, there are rules around who can get it in a tax-effective way and then adjusting uh, the assets in the rest of the estate for those um, members of the family who aren't superannuation beneficiaries. Um, also, powers of attorney and decision-making on lack of capacity, particularly where that lack of capacity comes with a deterioration in the subsequent marriage. You can often find arguments between, say, adult child who has got a power of attorney and spouse and adult child might say, well, no, you guys were on the rocks, you've separated and have all kinds of issues that come out of that and control, basically, of the money. Look, I hear situations also where someone thinks that everything's going to be rosy between their, their current partner or spouse and the children from mm. the former marriage. They'll get on, they're fine, and then they pass away and they're not around to see the mess. Yes. And yet you then have this big fight afterwards Absolutely. about who has control of entities and who gets their hands on the money. Yes, that's right. That's right. There was a recent case called Dawson versus Dawson, a New South Wales Supreme Court decision. Mm -hmm. And what happened in this case was there was a father and his uh, current partner or wife, I think it was, it was the second wife, who were trustees of the self-managed fund. He appointed his son as power of attorney. He was mm -hmm. um, declining in, in terms of mental uh, capacity. So the two trustees then became the son from a previous relationship and mm -hmm. his now wife. And then the father passed away and the wife wanted to basically replace her stepson mm -hmm. with her son-in-law if you can keep up with all the relationships <laughs> yep. so she wanted to get rid of the stepson as the co-trustee mm -hmm. and put in place her son-in-law so that they could have control of the super and this went off to court and because she'd taken a unilateral act she wasn't able to appoint her son-in-law mm -hmm. and therefore the the stepson was still involved in the, the running of that fund yeah um and it was, to me it was just another example of where the father had left them all to it yes yes and by going into this new relationship, he really hadn't thought everything through no. about the impact. And just a, a practical nightmare getting anything done. And um, it can end up in years of litigation. And one thing which um, I think is worth bearing in mind, which is something which surprises people, I am yet to come across a situation in which a party has lived for extended periods overseas and not had a secret second family. Can, so, you, can you repeat that? Yes, I know. It's kind of surprising. Um, I am yet to have a case in which a party has lived overseas, significant parts of the relationship, and not had a second family. So we're not even talking about second and subsequent relationships. We're talking about potential issues that can arise in simultaneous relationships. Concurrent relationships. That's correct. How do you maintain two lives like that? I don't know. And it sounds exhausting. It might be one thing to have someone in Asia that you see, for example, when you go on trips, yes. but to actually maintain a whole other family. Yes. It's really very common. It's staggering, isn't it? It is staggering. And I think of a story years ago, which was all over the media, where a fellow maintained two relationships and families, one in Melbourne, one in Sydney. 
and he was married to the the lady in Melbourne. He was um, partnered up with the one in Sydney, but he had two or three kids to each of them and was keeping all this quite silent until there was a house fire in Sydney and he and his partner up there were interviewed by the media about their house that had just burnt down and his wife in Melbourne is watching the news and was thinking, who is that woman with my husband? You wonder what was going through his head when the TV crews turned up and why he didn't just bolt. (laughs) Absolutely. Life's complicated enough, isn't it? Exactly. Serious question. What is the most number of divorces you've seen? Uh, the most I've seen that one person has had is five. Um, my record is I've acted for one unlucky gentleman three times. And yeah. what is your position that you would suggest going on the next date with him? Yes, yes. Yeah. So I said that to him. I said, second date, next second date you go on, I'm coming with you because you've got a terrible track record. <laughs> you can't be trusted. <laughs> Now, some other issues that come up. What about insurance? And I'm thinking typically life insurance Mm -hmm. um, because normally if it's just accident cover or trauma, that would be paid to the person who's uh, claiming under the policy. But I'm thinking more in the case of of life cover. This is a little bit like super. It would have to be reviewed and possibly updated in the event of a a relationship breakdown. Absolutely. Um, It's always important to, you know, regularly check all of these things, but particularly on both separation and a property settlement to make sure that insurances work. And insurances can actually be an interesting thing to look at in the period between separation and uh, a property settlement. So it's possible to get insurances in situations where, say, mum is looking after the kids and is reliant upon dad for child support and spouse maintenance to be able to uh, live, to have some insurance in place to protect that income um, for that period. Also for dad to make sure that obligations can be met. And um, an interesting thing, which I've had this argument with a few lawyers, is often in the consent orders and the precedents that lawyers use is a clause that said, each party shall remain the owner of, or the beneficiary of an insurance policy shall remain the owner of that insurance policy, which is, of course, not necessarily the outcome that you want because if you've structured the insurances properly so that the beneficiary is the person who will actually get the benefit, then you could be transferring very valuable insurance policies by accident. Absolutely. And it's not something that's very often understood and it is in the standard orders precedent that circulates in the family law world. Just a question, do you have a checklist of all the things that need to be considered or is this just experience? Uh, Look, we do have checklists, but a lot of it is experience because each case and particularly more complex cases is different. And I think that that's, you know, the most important thing to do is to know your area and not stray outside of it, which is why I started um, our conversation by saying, I'm a family lawyer, I'm not a tax lawyer. I can talk about some issues that arise in family law that relate to tax, but I would never uh, presume to give my clients tax advice. I need their accountant or their tax lawyer to do it. I need, if there's a bankruptcy and insolvency issue, I need a bankruptcy or insolvency expert. If there is a corpse law issue, I need a corpse law expert. Um, but by now we've got six lawyers lined up in the, in the room. Well... <laughs> 
Potentially, yes. Um, potentially, that's right. And hopefully it can be done in a, in a um, you know, streamlined way. But getting this stuff wrong is incredibly expensive. And I think superannuation is a classic example. If you accidentally make a super fund non-complying, you could be costing your clients millions of dollars. And so what's a couple of grand on some proper advice to not get it wrong? Child maintenance trusts, Mm -hmm. how do these work? So child maintenance trusts are a very interesting and useful vehicle. They require an income producing asset to be put into the trust. And also you have to be prepared to let the child take control, get that asset when they turn 18. So it is designed to transfer property to them eventually. Yes, that's right. So the property is put into the child maintenance trust. That makes it a tax effective way of paying child support. But then that property is given to the child. So that's often where, you know, clients come in and say, I've heard about these child maintenance trusts. I really like the sound of it. And I say, yes, but are you happy for little Johnny to have XYZ commercial property when they turn 18? And they say, ah, no. Now, what happens to the income? It's paid to the child? It's paid to the child support recipient, which is usually the carer. So often mum. The mother. Okay. And that would not be income to her? No, it's child support. Yep. Okay. So moving into child support, can you explain how this works? It seems to be a very contentious area. Um, There are always people who feel that they've been unjustly treated no matter which way it goes. Every uh, person who deals with child support is unjustly treated. So the person who's a recipient will say they didn't receive enough. The That's person right. paying it will say they paid too much. That's right. Everybody's trying to under-declare amounts so that they yes. are... Yes. yes. So I'm generalising, but, yep. yeah, no, there, but there are problems. A, that's absolutely right. And look, I think both sides are actually true. Um, depending on the amount of income that the income earner is earning, a lot of the time mums don't get much money. And I'm saying mums because it's usually mums, not always. Um, but, you know, some of the determinations of the child support agency can be really onerous also on, you know, paying usually fathers. One thing which is often not understood is the formula is the formula, but that doesn't mean that you're stuck with it. So there are grounds to have the formula changed. They're set out in the Act. There's, I think, eight off the top of my head, but they basically centre around... Uh, that the formula doesn't fairly reflect what should happen. So some of the grounds include where children are being educated in a way that was agreed by the parents. So, for example, private school. If kids went to private school during the relationship, then they're going to go to private school after separation. And that's a ground for saying, no, you should, you parents should pay more child support to cover that fee. Where there are financial resources that aren't captured by the the formula so you know if parents are very wealthy and helping out a lot or there's other sources um, of benefit where children have health issues there's a whole list of them but it's important to sit down and actually have a look at well how does the formula relate to this particular circumstance and is there something that we should do about changing the rate and what happens if you've agreed to a certain split or, or payment amount and then there is an unexpected school excursion or a medical mm-hmm. expense that comes up. How does that get dealt with? Well, if you're just using the formula, then the person with the kids pays for that, which is often where this you know, sense of injustice comes up 
It is possible to do a binding child support agreement that captures all of these other things. And that's something which, uh, if you've got a degree of goodwill, most people can work out. And something like a joint account that both people put into is often a really transparent and easy way of managing these issues. There are some changes proposed to single-touch payroll from next year. So mm-hmm. I don't know how much you know about this. but Not um, much, Robin. No, that's all right, because <laughs> I've been heavily immersed in single-touch payroll for, for more than three years. Um, broadly, of course, all employers are now required to report through STP as of 1 July this year. But in this year's budget, the government announced that there would be further changes from 1 July 2020. Mm-hmm. And that is going to require fortnightly reporting to the Department of Human Services. Now, from what I understand, it won't be a lot of change for the employer, but it basically just means more data is going to be passed on, mm-hmm. in this case, to DHS. And in one respect, it's going to be about making sure welfare payments are correct yes. based on real-time data, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. But it's also going to allow them to monitor child support payments. Yes. So where somebody who is the payer says, oh, no, my income is X, mm-hmm. and, and maybe that's not picked up at the moment until many months or a year later through what has been the previous reporting processes, Yes. now that with the, this real-time reporting they're going to be able to see instantly whether or not the right amount of child support is being paid. Yeah, because it's not uncommon to find that payers don't lodge tax returns for years and years and years. And for good reason from their perspective. Yes, that's right. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Um, The child support agency, uh, I think, is probably under-resourced and so the level of work which is going to be required to marry up the payments and to adjust them and then the I think lack of understanding in the community that this is going to cause could be problematic but I think as a general principle it's probably going to um, tidy some things up. I agree with you. The role of the accountant they're often called in to do forensic work. Yes. What is their position of this and how can they manage conflicts of interest? Well, that's a really good question and again it depends from case to case. I think one of the most obvious conflicts of interest question that comes up is where the accountant has historically acted for both of the parties. Which they often will have, not always, yes, but often. But a lot of the time. Um, and in some cases that can continue and in some cases it's really inappropriate for that to continue. And the minute you hear that your client is separated, I think you need to really sit down and think, well, you know, do I in fact need to side with one party And if I do, then I need to let the other party go as a client. Um, Forensic work where you act for the business as well can cause a conflict of interest and can be, I think, if there is going to be a big fight in the family court, an issue when it comes to that evidence because the accountant wouldn't necessarily be considered to be independent for the purposes of that evidence. It really depends on... What is the relationship between the parties like? What forum are you in? Are you are they negotiating and sorting things out or are they having a big fight and that leads you down two totally different paths? What do you see by way of tactics being engaged by parties? And I'm talking about the ones that are not as uh, accommodating or uh, pleasant to each other. Mm-hmm. Well, look, Robin, there are just almost too many to mention. But from a financial perspective... Um, there is a strong link between separation and business downturn. And I think some of that is real to do with stress, et cetera, that comes out of it. But it's a really common thing to hear, well, 
no, in the last six months, the business has tanked and we're no longer earning the income. You can find new entities being set up, funds being rerouted through different places. Um, it depends also on, you know, it comes down to the attitude of the parties. And it, although it's relatively rare to see somebody willing to let everything burn, it does happen and it actually happens more than you think. It's like cutting off their nose to spite their Absolutely. face. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're not getting any of it. Yep. Mm. I would rather let it all go. I would rather tank the business, not pay the mortgage, not pay insurances, all of that, than give you 50, 55% of what's there. We've also been reading some media reports lately about what is considered financial abuse. Mm -hmm. So it, again, tends to happen with uh, separating couples, but there will be tactics where one will deny the other one access to bank accounts or credit cards or insist that everything they do is reported back to them. Mm. And so it restricts one person's ability to be able to have financial freedom. Yes. And particularly when they're going through these proceedings, that can be quite oppressive. Yeah, that's right. And look, these are very grey areas and it's always really tricky when legislation is drafted in these grey areas. So financial abuse, when it happens, is a really terrible thing. It's totally debilitating. It's very much about control um, and it's a very real issue. That said, cutting off a credit card where one party has just maxed it out on shoes um, or booze is not financial abuse. So it's a matter of looking at what are the actual circumstances. Again, it depends on the relationship of the parties and everything in family law really boils down to that. If people want to fight, they're going to fight. If people are willing to be sensible and sort it out um, or understand that that's what they need to do, then there's a whole lot of different opportunities which are created. Um, but it's a matter of really understanding where they're at. I read of a, a story where a woman had been required by her husband to put all of the major expenditures that they had between them on her credit card. Mm-hmm. So white goods and child's orthodontist treatment mm-hmm. and things like this. So you know, big amounts of money going on the credit card. Yep. And then when they separated, he turned around and said, look at her monthly spending. Yeah, right. And well, I think in a spouse maintenance application, that would probably come back to bite him um, and work against him. But one of the worst things that I've seen is uh, a couple who'd been married for many, many years and they split all expenses equally to the point where if a husband went to Bunnings and bought two screws, and this is an actual example, he actually did go and buy two screws, he gave her the receipt and she had to give him six cents. Oh, goodness. And that's how they conducted their entire relationship. And he Totally kept, equal. Totally equal. And he kept spreadsheets of everything. They didn't earn the same amount of money. Are they still happily married? Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> one wonders why Um, are there any common errors that you see people make I think the the most common error that I see people make family lawyers make is to not pay attention to the tax and for accountants to assume that the family lawyers are going to pay attention to the tax which is why I say get on the front foot and be at the table and involved in the conversations because when you have businesses, entities, all of these kind of things, there are opportunities that can be created in a family law context and 
it can make a huge amount of difference to your client if you do do that, but it requires everybody to work together and to be a bit creative. Final comments relating to things like litigation, Mm. fees, court costs, delays, managing the expectations, going through the process of court and, and managing that stress. What does all that look like? Look, one of the things that I find as a lawyer is I give my clients fairly brutal advice about what litigation really looks like. They never believe me until they're in the process. And I've had many clients say, Sarah, you told me it was going to be this expensive and this horrible and I didn't believe you, but you were right. And if anything, you downplayed it. It cannot be underestimated. Sometimes people have no choice to be there, but that's actually relatively few people. Um, There is a saying that the family court is the one where they shoot the survivor. And it's actually uh, not far off the mark. Delays are such that a trial is a minimum a year away and that's if you're very lucky. If there's any kind of complexity to a case, it can run three to five years. Is that because of court schedules or is that because lawyers use tactics or is it because it takes that long to put a case together? Where do the delays come from? Look, it's probably a combination of those three. Um, It can take quite a bit of time to get all the information required to actually run a matter. Uh, In these big ones, there are often lots of interim fights about subpoenas, about payments, about valuation. Evaluation of a complex business can take six months. Uh, then you can have arguments about, well, has the market changed? Have you know other things happened? Uh, and then there's the issue of you know, judges not, not being able to hear matters. And this is between two people who at one point did love each other. Yeah, that's right. And it's it's really tragic and the the conflict often fuels itself so i say again there are people who absolutely need to be there and need to have a fight and when they do have the fight it has to be you know hard and fast and tough and all of those things but when i sit in the back of the court in a duty list most of the people in that list don't need to be there so most cases don't need to go to court no they don't what they do need, though, is some, you know, tough advice, some creative solutions and um, just ability to cut through. Thank you, Sarah. Any final comments? Uh, I think, look, again, these, these things are all really complex. It's a case-by-case uh, situation, but um, as an accountant, I think people are in, accountants are in an almost unique situation to really help their clients and be proactive. And as I say, that can make a huge amount of difference. And it's just, yeah, interesting to talk these issues through. It is. Look, thank you. That's been a a fabulous discussion. And I've I've really enjoyed the insights. And I think we've explored a lot of different aspects of of relationship breakdown. So thank you for your time today. Thank you, Robin. Thanks for listening to this episode of Taxiac. If you're enjoying our podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you are, because it will help to improve the profile of the show. If you'd like to connect with us on social media and let us know what you think or suggest future topics or speakers, you'll find us on LinkedIn and Twitter, or you can email us at podcast at taxbanter.com.au. You can also find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. We look forward to you joining us next time. Mm-hmm.